So today we're going to be at the end of 2 Timothy 3. We'll finish up a couple more weeks, chapter 4, but we're going to get to probably the best known verse in 2 Timothy. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to touch on verses 10 through 14 pretty quick because I want to spend a lot of time in 15, especially 16 and 17 about Scripture. Paul, still dealing with the false teachers, said, Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, uh, where persecutions I endured, and out of them the Lord rescued me. So he's just saying, Timothy, you, you have followed my life in ministry, okay? Um, you, the teaching, the conduct, the things that I've done. Paul's not bragging. He's not patting himself on the back. Paul is contrasting himself to the false teachers. Paul is comparing himself to the false teachers. And he's reminding Timothy of what he needs to do. Paul's not just out there bragging about himself, all that he's done. He wouldn't do that. In fact, oftentimes Paul talks about himself in really deprecating ways. He's the chief of sinners. You know, he's the lowest, you know, of all the apostles. He's the least. I mean, he's all of that stuff. And yet, when compared to the false teachers, he's got to do the opposite. And all of us should. I mean, um, if if, if there's false teaching and something going wrong in life, and I need to, to, I might say, listen, what I teach, what I preach is better than what they preach or teach at that church, because what they preach and teach are false. Sometimes you have to say, this is better. Sometimes people say, you know, I don't want to come there as another church. We'll say, yeah, this church is okay, and that church is okay. Uh, That's fine. But if they say, what about this church? We'll say, no, you don't want to go there, because what they teach is false. You come here, or you can go, you know, to the you know, other Baptist churches we may name, or even some non-Baptist churches if you know they're good. That's fine. But you don't want to go there. So this is really what Paul's doing, dealing with that church. And so he talks about those things, and they mean, you know, they're, they're, you understand what all those mean. But he reminds him he's been persecuted and he's suffering. And he tells him the places it happened, you know, and you were there. You knew it. You were part of it. Verse 11, he says, I endured it. That's a great biblical word. I endured Endurance is not passive, it's active. It is, it is, the word means to suffer moving forward. It's, the, it's not exactly what it means, but that's the picture. I suffered moving forward. I progressed. I didn't just take the blows and regress, you know, and hide myself somewhere until it was all over, you know, and then see what damage was done. I persevered, I endured, I progressed through the process. And he said, because of that, the Lord rescued me. And I, I love that part where the Lord rescued me. Because there are times you just have to say, and I've, and I've counseled people this way, look, you're going through a tough time. One day the Lord will get you out of it. Probably not today, but you've got to endure. And you, have you been in some difficult times in life? To always look down the line and know you're going to get out of it and wonder, Lord, is this the day? Is this the week? But when you get past it and you look back, you say, man, God got me through that. And I don't ever want to go through that again, but he got me through that. And this is really what Paul is saying. He's, he's always rescuing. Only now Paul's in the worst, the worst position of his life because he's in prison. He says, indeed, verse 12, all who want to live in a godly way, in other words, all who want to follow the Lord in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. Now, that's not necessarily true today. And that doesn't make it wrong because he's, he's talking about the moment. He's telling Timothy in Ephesus, in the world in which we live. Remember, Nero, he's in prison. Nero, going to start killing Christians left and right. And when he's through, there'll be a little bit of a break. Domitian will come, and he will kill them all, man, if he's everyone he can. 
There, and, and the people in Ephesus where Timothy is, you know the book of Revelation? You know where the seven churches, and Ephesus is one of them? And that's where all of that persecution is unleashed. And a couple of years ago when I did the deep fry, uh, and the deep fry is online, if you ever want to go see it, I did it from the book of Revelation. I talked about how, you know, the persecution, the suffering that happened there. They unleashed all that on them. They are going to be persecuted. And throughout the world today, except in really in America and other places of Western civilization, maybe Christians are persecuted. I think I said this last week. I, I didn't clarify. Someone asked me about it. because Someone said I mentioned something about the group most persecuted or whatever. The United Nations did a study a few years back. The most persecuted group of people in the world are Christians. So some of you asked me about that, so I hope that clarifies that. So the most persecuted group of people in the world, for a singular group, a singular demographic, are Christians. It's just the way that it is. And so you, 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 that's what he's saying. You're going to suffer. So it amazes me. No, I don't want to go ahead. Be sure that you don't have a theology in a doctrinal position that denies the reality of Christians suffering and being persecuted. If you do, you are at odds with Paul, and you are at odds with Jesus, who said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake, because it will happen. Who told the apostles, if they and I'm paraphrasing from John. If they want to kill me, they're going to want to kill you. Be careful that you don't spend your time in life arguing against Jesus and Paul because you think you read something somewhere in the New Testament that you actually never read, but people sort of made up. So whatever that's worth and it's not worth much except being right. <laughs> verse 14, excuse me, verse 13. But evil people and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That is the false teachers. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of. Part of that's from Paul. Part of that's from his family. He mentioned others. Knowing from whom you have learned them. You've learned things from me. You learned things from your family. Verse 15. And that from childhood. Remember his, you know, Lois and Eunice, grandma and mama, his grandma and his mama, that you, childhood, you have known the sacred writings which were able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The sacred writings of the Old Testament. You knew all them. And remember, in their viewpoint, they didn't have the New Testament yet. Paul's writing the New Testament. Um, so is Peter. Um, the sacred writings of the Old Testament. And I told you, I've told you this a thousand times. The Old Testament promises something the New Testament delivers on. That's Jesus. If you don't read the Old Testament in, through, the, through the lens of understanding that it's pointing progressively forward to a Messiah, you are not going to read the Old Testament correctly. Read the Old Testament as it points to Jesus. Not, 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 he, that doesn't mean every time you read something, Jesus is there. It doesn't mean when you got, you know, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace that Jesus is the angel that appeared. I'm not saying that because I don't believe that. I'm saying everything moves towards Jesus. Not that Jesus is on all the pages of the Old Testament. Two, different, two entirely different doctrinal positions. Verse 16 says this. All scripture is inspired by God and beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness. 
so that the man, you know, like the New American Standard, or woman of God may be fully capable, equipped for every good work. So let's talk about Scripture being inspired and all of that. I'm going to read to you the only other place in the New Testament um, that actually has something also that clearly about inspiration in Scripture. It comes from 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19-21. through And Peter and Paul, incidentally, are going to die at the same time, under Nero. So it's interesting that they both wrote the last, some of the last words either one wrote. Peter said this, We had the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Then later on, he says this at the last, from the last words he ever wrote about Paul. He says, in regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all, all his letters, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also, notice this, the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. So Peter already looked at some of the things Paul wrote as being the equivalent of scripture. So Paul talks about all scripture being inspired by God. So he's talking about the Old Testament, he's talking about all scripture. And there's some debate whether he's talking about all scripture as a whole, or all these scriptures, or everything that's considered scripture, and at the end of the day it means the same thing. Paul's just saying this, everything in the Old Testament was inspired by God. And that holds true. We understand that analogy, that principle holds true in the New Testament as well. So inspiration, it means God breathed. And the word literally is the breath of God, the Spirit of God. Uh, Peter says the same thing when men moved by the Holy Spirit. The inspiration deals with the source of Scripture. Old Testament, New Testament, it's God. Specifically, it's the Holy Spirit working as God reveals himself through the pages of what is spoken and written and eventually gets written down. It is inspired. It comes from God to man. Nothing in the scriptures originated in the creative process of man working it out. That mean that we, that doesn't mean God didn't use our abilities and talents. I'll talk about that in just a minute, but it came from God. Two other words we use are inerrant and infallible. And so inerrant means that wherever facts are given, they're always correct. Infallible deals with whenever there is a sense of oughtness, morality, ethics, it is correct. So let me, the, the resurrection is a good example. The fact that the New Testament clearly teaches that Jesus rose from the dead is a fact. It is inerrant. There is no error. So when we say Christianity rises or falls on the resurrection of Jesus, that means that it physically, actually, historically happened, there is no error in that process. The fact that the resurrection of Jesus paves the way for our salvation by the removal of sin in allowing us to put our faith in him is infallible. It's not a, it's not a documented historical evidential fact. It is a doctrine of faith that comes from Jesus and God and everybody else. It is infallible. If you trust Christ to be your Savior, you will be saved. Now we can say, well, that's a fact. I get it. But it's not, it's not, there's not a piece of evidence out there that shows that. Okay? So it's infallible. 
the writing of, of his resurrection. For instance, what we've seen in John chapter 20 these last few weeks in, in Sunday and the, the following Sunday on Easter, all of that that was written down is inspired. The Holy Spirit inspired John. Now, sometimes people disagree about how inspiration works. Is it word for word? In other words, you know, they sat down and the Holy Spirit just kind of moved the hand to write it all out. Some believe that. Some believe that the Holy Spirit just gave them the concepts and ideas and then they wrote all that out. But neither one of those makes good sense. <clears throat> it's better to understand it, I think, from the balance of Scripture and the balance of what has been taught through the history of the faith, that the Holy Spirit moved and inspired them to write with their own personalities and their own skill sets and ability. For instance, a good example is this. The Greek in Peter is not necessarily as good as the Greek, say, Luke would write with. So some of the grammar is off. So some of the grammar is bad. So does the Holy Spirit have bad grammar sometimes and good grammar in other times? Well, no, of course not. But he's working through the process. Um, David, when he writes lots of poetry, David, David, to my knowledge, he didn't write any history. just wrote poetry. On the other hand, Moses pretty much wrote nothing but history and the law. So God used them. Now, there are times when God dictates. For instance, the Ten Commandments are dictated verbatim. Write this down, this way, thou shalt not kill. Except he didn't use King James English. Don't kill anybody. Sometimes the Old Testament prophet would say, thus saith the Lord. Sometimes. It's the very concept being inspired. For instance, Paul might write, this didn't come from God. This comes from me. It doesn't mean it's not inspired, but what he's saying is, I didn't just get this to write this down. This comes from my understanding of what God wants me to give you, or the Lord wants me to give you. Don't pin yourself on a position in which you can't allow for the fluidity and the uniqueness of every book and author in the Old and New Testament. All of them work through the process. And what's important to realize is that before Peter died, in around 65 A.D., give or take a year, people already began to understand, including the apostle who was closest to Christ, that some of the things Paul wrote were inspired, that they were on the same level of Scripture. I'm going to talk to you for just a few moments about how we got the New Testament. I'm not going to focus on the Old Testament. Uh, really, the New Testament is what I'm going to focus on, because there's always the controversy, and you hear, you know, the church made all this up, and they wrote all this, they wrote all that, yada, 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 yada. From the very beginning, understand that Christianity at its core at the beginning was Jewish. Most people were not educated. But they're not, they didn't sit down in a synagogue. All of you are educated, I think. But in a synagogue, you wouldn't have that. You, have, you would have men. The guys would grow up in the, in, the, in the synagogue and be taught. But there'd be limitations. You just didn't have the level of education. And so what they usually did is they memorized things. You also didn't have all the writing tools. I mean, forget before the computer age, which is you know, a lot of us. You know, I mean, we have paper, we have writing paper, everything. You go in our office, we got paper all over the place. We got pens and pencils. None of them work evidently because I can't find one that works. We got pens and pencils everywhere. Plus, you now have computers and laptops, and some of you could be taking notes on your, you know, your smart devices. We got, we got an 
infinite number of possibilities almost to write stuff down. They didn't have that. So they memorized. And they were really good at memory. We're not, most of us aren't good at memorization. I'm horrible at it. I mean, people, I grew up saying, you got to memorize scripture. I have a hard time memorizing scripture. I got like six verses that I memorized. The rest, I just paraphrase and make it sound like I'm really smart when I do it because, you know, I'm the preacher. And so I'll just say it basically means this, and I'll paraphrase here, and it sounds good, theoretically. I, I can't memorize stuff, but they could. And they would take, from the very beginning, things that Jesus said, and they remembered it. And over time, before we got the scriptures, some of that would be written down and handed down and given down. And then they began to realize that Jesus isn't coming back and there's going to be a whole generation of Christians coming up and there aren't going to be the original guys left and other people. So they began to formulate things. The first people that we had to begin writing are James and Paul. I think the very first book was written was James. Some think it was written maybe in the mid-50s. I think it was written about 48, 49. Paul, almost everything... That's not written by Paul, was written after the major books of Paul. Not you know, uh, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, not those books, but all the other letters. Um, you know, the Gospels, the Gospels were started to be written, so they were, maybe they count. But I just mean, Paul just wrote, he wrote Galatians, 1 and 2 Corinthians, 1 and 2 Timothy, uh, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, I'm sorry, and Romans before anything, before any of the Gospels were written. Then they started writing Mark and then probably Matthew and Luke together, and then John's stuff was written later. Peter and John's stuff were written later. But early on, these things began to circulate. And when Paul wrote a letter, for instance, Paul's in prison, and he wrote a letter, let's say the church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus would take that, they would make copies, and they'd begin to circulate those letters around other places. In fact, when you read in the book of Revelation, the seven churches, they make a circular, an arc, I mean, uh, just a circle. And, and, and really, the, 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 the best theory is that that each of those seven churches got a copy of John's book. They wrote those copies down, and then they sent it along the path where they were because they were centers of influence, almost like postal things, postal carriers. So all these letters would get dispersed, and other people began to read them. And in time, they began to understand some of them mattered. And by the time the apostles died off, the early church fathers began to look at a certain number of these books as being really important. Now, there were some other books, too, that were important. Clement wrote some stuff. There were a few other things. But over time, there were no meetings. They didn't sit down and meet at the you know, end of the first. I always, when people say, well, the early church made all this up and they just put it together, I'm like, well, when did they do it? Explain to me how. Because if you know anything at all about that time, it didn't work that way. They were being persecuted. When you're, when, when, Domit, when you're in the first century and the emperor's trying to kill you, you know what you don't do? You don't have a big meeting of all the churches in Europe so that he can pick you off at one place. They didn't do that stuff. But word began to spread, and some of these books began to be held together. And by the time you're into the second century, except for 2 Peter, Jude, Maybe James, all of the books that we know were pretty much being accepted by a church somewhere or a lot of churches somewhere in Scripture. They didn't all accept the same ones. Some of them emphasized Paul, some emphasized you know, other things, but they all began to circulate in the eastern part of Christianity, which is Turkey, in the western part, which is Rome. By the time you get to the third century, the 200s, it's really becoming clear what they accepted 
in all these individual churches. And of course, they communicated back and forth. And there was some argument back and forth, but it begins to come to fruition. So by, by the fourth century, those 27 books, and, and the only reason that, that Jude and Second Peter struggled, it was just, there, was, there was just some things in it that were odd. And Hebrews was kind of a struggle, and, but basically it was attributed to either Paul or someone close to Paul, like Luke or Barnabas. But basically, by the middle of the fourth century, before yeah, those, those 27 books were all it. And there was no dispute. And there were not books left out. I hear people say, well, there were other books that were left out. No, they weren't. You know why? Because those books were not written till late first, early second, I mean, late second, early third century. The books they talk about, like, like um, you know, the books of the Gospel of Peter and the Gospel, you know, of Thomas and all those books, they were written so much later, nobody in the church accepted them. Cults accepted them. Break-off groups accepted them. But they weren't considered Orthodox Christian groups. So you can't say a group of Gnostic heretics accepted the works of Marcion or the Gospel of Thomas, and so the church, though, lift them out. The church, they're not the church. They were heretics. And the real criteria about what books would end up being basically accepted, they either needed to come from an apostle or somebody close to it. Well, like Jude and James, because Jude and James were considered apostles. But I mean, like Hebrews, it came from someone close. Luke was not an apostle, but he was attached to Paul. And those books just were accepted. And it's an amazing process. There eventually was a council that voted to close the canon. They didn't vote, as is erroneously reported, to decide which books were in they already knew which books. They voted to say there will never be any more books considered Scripture. And they basically said it's closed off. And those books, when you read them, have two things going for them. And I talk about these things all the time. They're authoritative. And there's the mark of authenticity. There's nothing... Read, read the books that got left out, supposedly. There's stuff in there like, well, that's crazy. That couldn't have happened. Obviously, Jesus didn't marry Mary Magdalene. Obviously, you know, the story where Jesus, you know, created a pigeon out of clay and then killed it. That's just silly. That didn't happen. And all those things, you know, talking crosses. One of them, the Gospel of Judas has a talking cross, I think, or Peter, one of them does. I can't remember all the. I mean, all, that's, you don't see any of that in these books that all got left out. I mean, those books all got, were left out because they weren't authoritative. They didn't trace to apostle, but sometimes well, it was attributed to Thomas or Peter because they lied all the time back then. The only way your book could have accepted if in the second, third century is if you attributed it to an apostle. Nobody wanted to hear a book from a guy named Earl. No offense, Earls. They might need a book. But if you said, no, if Peter wrote it, oh, okay. And so that's the process. And so that's the amazing thing. And what happens here, and what it says, is that Scripture was inspired by God, and it was beneficial. What was it beneficial for? You could teach it. You could take it to rebuke someone who was in error. You could correct false teaching. You could train people in how to live so that the person who followed Christ, the man or woman of God, could be equipped to do the works. When you read those 27 books, every one of them help in that process. 
There's nothing in any of them that is not beneficial. Listen, I, I, some, there's some strange stuff in Second Peter. I got you. And Jude, I taught a whole series on Jude a few years back, you know, and there was a couple of places that got a little bit rough. But we, but we saw the benefit of all of it. And so that's how we kind of got that process, and that's really what happened. And Paul says, all of it's inspired by God. And so we need to understand these 27 books are all inspired by God. They are all equally inspired. Now let me just say this before we close. In terms of the Old Testament, especially. Every one of the 39 books, see, it's either it's 27 New Testament, 39 Old. Sometimes I get dyslexic and I go backwards and I have 37, 29. If you're dyslexic, I apologize, I shouldn't say that. But what happens is not all 39 of those books are equally inspired, okay? They're not all equally useful to you and me. I just got through reading about two months ago, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, okay? When Leviticus, where it says, be holy for I am holy, that helps. I like that. Peter quotes it. In Leviticus, when it talks in the tabernacle and in Numbers about what the lampstands will look like, that doesn't help me. It is not important in the 21st century Christian movement. It's not. I've seen, I remember when I was a young youth minister, the pastor I served under took the temple, the tabernacle, and preached through all of the things in the tabernacle. It was the single most boring series I ever heard until his next series. It was useless to us. Now, if you want to read it, if you can stay awake, I read it all. I, I got, every so often, I got to read it because I just got to do, or I can't be a minister anymore. It's a rule somewhere. <laughs> but there are parts of Leviticus, number, and Deuteronomy that moved me. There are. I'm, I, there are parts that's just amazing. When God says, be holy for I am holy. Amazing. I'll read that all day long. And, and, and just God delivering his people is amazing. Next year, I'm in Exodus, I'm going to preach, you know, I'm going to preach uh, about the confrontation between Pharaoh and God, and then, I'm going to do a, and then I'll do some stuff also on the, on the deep fries. But, I, but I'm going to stop before I get to all the weird laws that don't apply to us, because at that point, it won't be amazing. So understand, it's all inspired, but not all of it's helpful. And it's okay if you read something and you say, I didn't get it. I do it all the time. So, for whatever that's worth. We'll see you.